Welcome to Wonder Mag on Air, show number 80. And this week we're going to set sail, but not for long, because I have a feeling we're going to probably crash on a deserted island, or it may not be so deserted, as I talk with Hope Juber, who is the daughter of Sherwood Swartz, the man who created Gilligan's Island, The Brady Bunch, and many more series that you probably remember from your childhood, or maybe you watched it in reruns, but they're all well-loved series. And it was my pleasure to talk with Hope and about these shows and to, just to be able to speak with her and relive all these great memories. So I hope you're looking forward to that because I really did enjoy talking with her. So on with the interview. This is Denny Reese with Wonder Mag on Air. And I tell you what, I am thrilled with my guest today. Uh, the name at first may not, you may not even know the name at first. Hope Juber. Is that the way you pronounce it, Hope? Now, you are the daughter of Sherwood Swartz, a TV legend, and you, your husband's famous too, and you're famous in your own right, which we're going to get into all that. We're going, to all, we're going to talk about all that, but first of all, we talked the other day about a story because your father is the man behind Gilligan's Island, and often after school, you would visit the set. Well, just tell us a little bit about that story and how that came to be. Well, yeah, it was, my yeah, just elementary school was uh, about a block and a half from the set where they filmed Gilligan's Island. And my, my best friend Carrie, her dad, was doing Guest Smart at the time. And afterwards, 
uh, we would just walk down the street and go to CBS Center, which is where they were filming both those shows. And when we got there, we would decide whether we were going to go hang out on the island or visit uh, the set where they were having some chaos. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. So they, they were filmed next to, next to each other. So Gilligan's Island was—it really wasn't on an island. I guess a lot of people probably thought it was. Uh, the first few episodes were filmed on um, on an actual island in Hawaii, uh, but the the rest of the, the show was shot at CBS Center, which was in Studio City, and they had a lagoon that was there that they also they used that lagoon for I think Gunsmoke and a few other like Western shows whenever they needed a lagoon. They have um, since paved over the lagoon and made it into a parking structure. Wow. And they took the last chunk of the lagoon and they gave it to my dad. <laughs> well, that was a wonderful gift. Uh, I, I, I read an, I heard an interview with him the other day on YouTube about where he was talking about the series. And there's some wonderful interviews. I guess he did with the uh, archives of television or something like that. But, right. But uh, he talked about they would get letters from people and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but these people actually believed there were seven stranded castaways on an island somewhere, and would write. Oh, yeah, writing, we would weekly get get letters <laughs> from people worrying about these people, and why don't you send somebody to rescue them? And and it was it it was pretty amazing to all of us that they really believed that there were seven people, and I don't know where they thought the laugh track was coming from. <laughs> and the music. <laughs> Oh, well, it, it was such a wonderful series. We're going to be talking a lot about Gilligan's Island and, and his other series, of course, The Brady Bunch, and many more. But uh, let's get let's go back in time. Uh, can you tell us anything about um, your father's radio days and how he transitioned into television? Do you want to know how he, he got into it in the first place? That'd be great, yeah. Okay. Well, Dad always wanted to be a doctor. And he, he just, in his heart, he felt like he should be a doctor. So he was going to pre-med school, and he was out in um, Los Angeles, and his brother Al was a writer for Bob Hope. Mm -hmm. And um, every once in a while, Dad would sell a joke to Bob Hope through his brother. And then um, when the war broke out and Bob Hope was putting together his USO um, groups to, to write his shows, he, uh, he asked Dad to be one of those writers, and Dad decided to, to go ahead and do that at that point. But it was, it was always really interesting to, to us as his family because he kept this medical bag, this like black bag with medical things in it, just by his desk all the time till the day he died because he really he wanted to be a doctor. He felt mm -hmm. like he could cure some disease and that that would be just a real gift to the world and I think he, he just always he, he didn't regret his decisions but he 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 just took a different path and I always used to say to him that that his laughter from his shows was, was better medicine to more of America than he could have ever done as a doctor. And that's so, very anyway. true. That's very true, Hope, because I also read stories about where sometimes the cast members of um, Gilligan's Island would visit people in the hospitals and yes. really brought their spirits up. Yes, Dad was a very big believer, especially in children's hospitals. 
and he was a big donor, and he put together a ward, um, like a, a waiting room area that was uh, full of like colorful Gilligan's Island kind of. Uh, it was, it was seen, the scenery was like Gilligan's Island, and he would bring the castaways to the hospital to visit the children. He was just always, um, he was very generous and very warm-hearted guy, my dad. And uh, he um, was working for Bob Hope and just got more and more, he, he became one of his, his major writers on UFO tours and then on his radio shows. And um, he transitioned from that into working on shows that were series shows, like when Ozzy and Harriet was on the radio. He was one of the writers for that show. And when everything started uh, kind of transitioning over to television, he um, decided that he was going to, to have his hand, try his hand at that too. So he did. And he ended up um, working on a show called I Married Joan. Remember that? Which was a, a sitcom that one of the stars was Jim Backus, who. He and Dad became very close friends, and, and Dad had a lot of respect for his, his talent. So um, I think you know where he is. He right. <laughs> wound up right. as Thurston Howell III. So um, I think that was his first major sitcom was, was uh, I Married Joan. And he worked for, for a while on that, and he worked for um, quite a while on The Red Skelton Show. He was the head writer on the Red Skelton show for a while. So he was writing at this time. He wasn't producing yet. Yeah, right. He yeah. was he was writing, mm -hmm. and um, he wrote this one episode that had no dialogue whatsoever, and it won. That was what he won his Emmy for because it was like a comedy episode, but without any dialogue. So it was a very unusual piece. He was always very proud of that. And then he started having his own ideas for TV shows, and one of them was, of course, Gilligan's Island. I want you to talk about uh, when he first pitched the idea for Gilligan's Island and how much trouble he had getting that sold. Oh, he had terrible trouble. <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he ran into all sorts of roadblocks and executives who weren't crazy about the idea and, and found all sorts of reasons not to go with it and they turned it down and, and he'd come back with it and, and um, finally he was he was at one meeting and, and the executive there, he was trying to you know pitch his show although Dad hated the word pitch he would always present his ideas okay. he never liked to pitch things <laughs> he thought it made, made him feel cheap so he would present his ideas and the executive there, uh, one of the executives, I forget the guy's name, I think it was Aubrey. Anyway, um, he was, his one objection to, to even going near this show was that, how do we know about these seven people? How would we know? Every week we're going to turn in, how would people who haven't seen the original show, would, how would they know what this was about? And so Dad said, well, we could have a theme song that explained it. And so the executive said, well, theme songs are meant to be sung. If you want to sell this show to, to the network, how about you sing us this theme song? So Dad went home after the meeting and thought to himself, well, I'm a terrible, terrible singer, but if I don't sing the song, I don't get my show on. And if I do sing the song, I'll probably not get the show on because I'm such a bad singer, but... There's a possibility 
that it could at least explain. So he came and he passed out the, uh, the lyrics to this song, and the executive said, Sherwood, these are nice lyrics, but lyrics are meant to be sung. Sing. And Dad took a gulp, and he sang a theme song. It wasn't the one that ended up on the show, but at least it gave the indication on how to explain where these, you know, why these seven people were on the island every every week. And so that kind of it got past that hurdle. And there were other hurdles that came up, and and the executives were always they did not like this idea for the show, and they felt that the the show would be much better off if it was a, a charter boat that went out and maybe they got marooned for a while, but then they get rescued and they just go back and forth and all the adventures on this charter boat with Gilligan and the skipper. And that's the show they wanted to do. And um, Dad didn't want to do that. Dad wanted to, he wanted to have seven people stuck on this island yeah. because Dad's vision for this, this whole idea was that if you take all these different kinds of people and put them together, they're going to have to learn how to work together and how to how to be together like a family. Great concept. And, yeah, and, and for him, his philosophy was always, that's the most important thing, is how do you get human beings to all work together um, as a family? And he, he always told me that all of his shows had that same that same basic idea, which you can see on Brady Bunch, it's true too, is you have two different families melding together, right. and how do they go ahead and, and work together? So he wanted that, he wanted an, a, a series where he would have people stuck together where they couldn't get away, and he was thinking about like offices and work shows, and, and he went to sleep one night, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and he, he had this the thought, he said, an island. And he woke my mom up and he said, Mildred, Mildred, I've got it. it it's an island. So they, they're shipwrecked on this island and they can't get away from each other. So so they have to learn to work together. And my mom said, go back to sleep, Sherwood. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's when he, he got up the next day and he wrote out the treatment for this, this series. Because he just always felt that for the world, the most important thing is that people have to learn to live together. And you know, they, they couldn't get off the island, but so many people seemed to find their way to the island. Isn't that true? <laughs> I mean, a deserted island, and like every other week, somebody's dropping in. <laughs> well, it really made for interesting uh, TV watching. Uh, one thing that was, that was actually one of the trickiest parts of the whole show, because they had to figure out a way not only to get people there, but why they would leave and leave the castaways there and not like say anything. There was always it had to be a reason why these people who dropped in would not rescue them. You know, to and me, whether to, it was they got hit on the head or yeah. they were, you know, protecting their jobs or whatever it was, there was always that was like one of the trickiest things um, in writing the show. To me, it was always logical, of course, you know, watching it as a kid. But I mean, even now, I just it's just all fun now to watch that back and watch these episodes over again, okay. probably for the, I don't know. 50th or 60th time I've seen them it was I think it's never been off it's never been off the air has it it's always been in syndication it's always been shown somewhere yeah and it's, it's quite big in like Australia and uh, a few other places that you you know we, we discover along the way that it, it was like a, a favorite in 
in Australia and I think in Japan for a while, mm. in Italy. Just so it's amazing. Been, so it's dubbed in in another language, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you one question that you just just come to my mind. You were talking about the theme song. Now, was the one they finally wound up using, was that one sung by the Wellingtons? Yeah, for the first, for the first season. And then the, the second and third season was by, I think it was The Eligibles. I think it was called okay. The Eligibles. I was thinking one of those groups, uh, did they play the Mosquitoes on, on an episode, or was that a different group? Yes, the, um, the Wellingtons did play Bingo Bongo. <laughs> I can't remember their names, but <laughs> and of course that theme song changed from one from the first season because it it used to say and the rest, and they right. they finally added the professor and Marianne. Yeah, and it. there are conflicting stories as to how that happened. I think um, Bob Denver always claimed that he um, he was the one who insisted and and um, it made it a point that in his contract he could put his name anywhere and if they didn't add um, the professor and Marianne, he'd put his name last, which would make no sense at all <laughs> because he felt very badly that Dawn and, and Russell weren't getting upfront credits. So, um, but I know that Dad also uh, wanted to, to do that anyway. And it was like there were contractual things and, and reasons for it. I mean, I, I think that at one point, um, Tina Louise's agent had something to do with that. But um, at any rate, I think Bob had a hand in it. Dad had a hand in it. And I think everybody was happy when it went, became the professor and Marianne. But I think that just adds to the allure of the show because of that fact. Okay. I want to ask you now, we talked about Bob Denver, who played uh, Gilligan, of course. I can't picture anybody else doing that role, but when we talk about the original casting, how the series was cast, for example, I've heard that Jerry Van Dyke almost became Gilligan and Carol O'Connor could have been the skipper. Well, <laughs> what do you, what? Jerry Van Dyke um, was my dad's first choice to play Gilligan, and um, he... Did he rejected the script in favor of My Mother the Car. Oh, wonderful choice. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, um, I know Bob Denver was interested in playing the part, but my dad, after watching Dobie Gillis, he felt like that maybe this kind of beatnik um, character wasn't right for it. And I know Bob Denver, um, he actually worked quite hard at convincing dad and... Um, that he would be right for the part of Gilligan, and he was just spectacular. I mean, the, the man, Bob Denver was so brilliant, and he's a the smart man. Of course, he had, he had been Maynard he, Krebs, he right, on, on the Dobie Gillis show, on it, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. But it's, it's not easy to play um, naive and gullible like like he did when you're, you, you have to... Um, Actors are just, they always amaze me when, when they can come so sincerely across as one thing and you know when, by knowing them that they're not that at all. Yeah. And he was a very bright, bright man, and people would not think that if you just watched the show. Now, had he, he had been a teacher, hadn't he? He what? He had been a school teacher, hadn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was a, a school teacher. I think he was an English teacher yeah. for a while. Very, very um, 
nice, warm, um, a great guy. And you remain, I guess you remain friends with Bob Denver uh, for the rest of his life. Probably. Yeah. 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 The, the whole cast was, was friendly and, and became very family-like um, until, well, until we lost some of the, some of the castaways. Yeah. The only one that was um, kind of aloof was, was Tina, mm-hmm. the one, uh, Tina Louise Ginger. I remember when I was a kid and I would go to the set a lot and I would come down to the lagoon where they were shooting and I would always see like all the castaways kind of hanging out and joking and, and kind of, you know, playfully ribbing each other and stuff as, as they were setting up shots. And Tina was, um, kind of be, she was like always set herself a little away from that. <laughs> she usually had a parasol protecting her, um, from the sun and she was just a little kind of hands off whereas everybody else was just like, they became total buddies, and they were all re- remarkably kind and and wonderful people. It was uh, I as a kid, the only one that scared me was um, Jim Backus, because <laughs> I was like seven, eight years old. He had such a booming voice. He didn't mm. ever do anything to scare me. I yeah. just was scared because he had a, like a big voice. <laughs> of course, we talked about. I wanted to get into talking about each one individually, but you've already talked a little bit about Bob Denver. Um... How about Alan Hale? To me, he always seemed to be, would be much, much like the skipper in real life. He was a warm teddy bear. <laughs> he was just a big-hearted guy, and he would call up, and I remember, like, <laughs> I remember Dad always said he was really funny because he would, he'd call up, and, and when Dad would answer the phone, um, Alan would say, and another thing, as if he were talking, <laughs> <laughs> as if he were talking before. But he was, um, he was the hardest to cast. I know Dad had real trouble. You were talking about Carol O'Connor before, yeah. mm-hmm. and Dad had trouble casting the skipper because, and it made a lot of sense when you thought about it, because you had this big guy who's always hitting this little guy on the head with a hat, yeah. and the tendency would be you'd hate the big guy because he's like mean to this little guy, and so Dad's main criteria for the the skipper was that he had to be lovable even when he was hitting this little guy on the head with a hat. <laughs> and so people came in to read for the skipper and even Carol Connor came in and he just, dad just said he just didn't have that just innate warmth that you love him anyway. You know that mm-hmm. he loves Gilligan. And, and um, so they didn't find, he was the last one to be cast because they couldn't find somebody who had that quality. And then dad went to the commissary, he was eating I forget if it was lunch or dinner, but he looked across the commissary and, and Alan Hale was there, and Alan Hale Jr., and he was was just eating his meal, and Dad looked at him from across the room and said, that man, that guy, that's my skipper. <laughs> and so they had to bring him in. He was like on lo- he was going on location for a movie he was working on, and they had to, to bring him in for the audition, and the moment he came in and the moment he auditioned, Dad was like, yes, he, he has that warmth. You love him, and you know that even when he's hidden Gilligan with the hat, you know that he still loves him. And you know, Alan Hale was not known for doing comedy at that time. No, he wasn't. No, but he came from a, a stellar acting oh, his, family. Oh, his, his father, a, yeah. Uh, he he was in a lot of, you know, the Earl Flynn films. Uh, but here, right. here's one thing I've found remarkable. If you watch these, at one point... I guess when they were about the same age, 
in their own lives. Uh, that Alan Hale and his father were identical looking. They were amazing. <laughs> they, they just looked so much like each other. Oh, yes, I know. Just the, the, the facial, the, the expressions, just the, the stance, everything. It, it really was one of the, the most like offspring of of any that I've seen in terms of like, you'd look at him, you'd look at the dad, but there's no, no uh, question about it whatsoever. <laughs> and then Alan Hale later on went went on to have uh, have a famous restaurant in the, the Lobster Barrel. Yes, yeah. I used to go there a lot with with my mom and dad. We'd visit Alan there. Okay, Jim Backus. I want to just a little bit more on him because you know, for me, he, he two things I always think about him is Thurston Howell, of course, and the voice of Mister Magoo. Yeah, and also he he had some amazing. Serious roles. I mean, in Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. he was phenomenal in that. James and he was just a wonderful, wonderful actor, and he was a great improviser. He would like throw in just improvised lines, and and oftentimes they ended up keeping them, and they were like in the show. They ended up in the show. He'd he'd have like these little throwaway lines that after the scene was over, and he'd be walking away, he'd say something, and it was just. He, he was right on the money all the time. It's <laughs> funny to say that Thurston Howell was on the money. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you think he was the, was the first choice to play the millionaire? Yes. Yes. Ever since I Married Joan. Okay. Dad just had so much respect for him as an actor and loved working with him. And he was, immediately, he, he wanted him as the, the millionaire. And when they, they cast Natalie Schaefer, yeah. she... She really thought of it as just a, um, an excuse to be able to go to Hawaii. She didn't think the show was going to go at all. <laughs> she just thought she'd get a free trip to Hawaii. And it surprised her quite a bit when, when she was cast. She was a, a funny lady. She had, um, she had a husband for a, a long time, and she never told him how old she was. And at the very end, when, um, when he was on his deathbed, her husband... Um, Natalie was there with him holding her, holding his hand and, and she said, is there anything that I can do for you? Is there anything I can, and to make you happy, you know, more comfortable? Mm -hmm. and, and he said, yes, would you tell me how old you are? <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't. <laughs> she didn't do it, huh? Well. Yeah. But she was, um, she was actually quite, um, she had a, a, a very, uh, randy sense of humor which was, you wouldn't think of it that way, but she would always tell, like, slightly off-color jokes. Well, and watching her, you wouldn't think that she would have been someone who was used to doing comedy either. Right. Yeah. Right. But she did, like, I remember seeing her on I Love Lucy and mm -hmm. a couple of other sitcoms, but she was very elegant. She did a lot of stage work. Yeah. Now, was she the first castaway to, to pass away, or was it someone before her? No, I think she was. She was pretty much when when they had um, Jim Backus and and Natalie came in. I think that they were like an instant couple. The dad was quite convinced right away that she. No, I'm for I'm, it. I'm sorry. I, uh, I I meant I was trying to see if she was the first castaway who passed away to die. Oh, castaway. Yeah, who passed yeah, away. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, I think Jim was. Oh, was he? Okay, I didn't. I I get confused on when when each one. I know Russell Johnson, who we're going to talk about here just next. He wrote, I think, yeah, a wonderful Russell book Johnson, about... He was great. He was just... A, he was very bright again and, and very brave. He, he has, like, a, a military background. He was, like, a, a decorated soldier and 
and just just really a, a great guy and just had a, a lovely wife and, and a family. I'm still in contact with his daughter. And and he was just a, a really, um, a, again, not one who was known for comedy. I mean, he did all those Twilight Zones and, <laughs> yeah. and different, like, Westerns. He was very well known for Westerns. But, but I think his commitment to the role as, he always played it so committed to the straight part of that role that it just, the, the straighter he was um, in, in like commitment to the, to the seriousness of whatever he was dealing with, the funnier it was. I remember dad said that one time he came to my dad and said, um, and asked him about one of the experiments and just said, I'm, I'm just curious, is there a scientific basis for this? Because he wanted to be able to really commit to, to explaining this scientific thing. And dad said, there will always be some scientific grain of truth in there. I will always try to make it that, that it will make sense in some way. And, and that was good enough for him. So he totally, he committed to it and just, you, you believed <laughs> that you could like recharge the radio battery by stirring coconuts. And mm-hmm. you know, you could, everything that, I guess the salt water, there, there was like some kind of truth to salt water having some kind of acidic thing. I don't know, I'm not good at science. But, but because dad had like this scientific medical background, he always would try to find something that would make it make sense so that Russell would commit to it. And the professor was the most serious role on this, on the, he had the most, yeah. you know, on the island. And, Which made it funny. <laughs> and it made it funny, funnier when he would actually uh, break character and, and say or do something funny. Okay, Tina Louise, we, you, you mentioned her just a little bit, but I, I myself, I've always thought she probably got a bad rep because she probably, you know, later on in her in her years, she um, she softened just a little bit and I think even went to some reunions, didn't she? Yeah, she did. I think that at first it was very difficult for her. Um, I mean, I can't judge her. I don't ever feel like I'm in a position to, to judge how something affect somebody's life, mm-hmm. and, and I know that she had um, a lot of belief that she had um, more of a movie career ahead of her, and that being Ginger in Gilligan's Island tended to to stunt that, and I think that, that for a while that was really difficult, because she felt like she was on a career path, and it kind of made her go in a left turn way, and that it wasn't like fair to what she felt like her real talents were. And, and who knows, maybe that's true, I don't know. Um, she was very well known for some of the, the movies she was doing and some stage work, and terrific actress. I don't know anybody who could have played that role better. I mean, she was just brilliant. Um, I think that as time went on and she kind of realized that Gilligan's Island wasn't going to go away and that it was entertaining and... And, and keeping people happy so many, many years after she was even in it, that she started to have an appreciation more for her role in it and, and what it is and her place in history with it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't feel in a position to judge how people uh, react to, to fame because I think it's, I think it's 
it's hard on some people and it's mm -hmm. not on other people. I don't know. Now, was she in the rescue movies? No. I didn't think she, she was. She didn't do any of the rescue movies. Uh, Judith Baldwin did the first one and I, I'm sure that your listeners would know who did the second and third, but I only worked on the first one. And of course, <laughs> Ginger, Ginger, she wasn't the first Ginger. I mean, it, there was a different Ginger in the pilot, right? Yes, but it was a different character. Right. Oh, was it the, different? Okay. The, Okay, before we take a break, I want to talk a little bit about Dawn Wells. She, she seems like such a sweetheart. She's still with us, and, and uh, just she must just be a wonderful person. I love Dawn, and I still love Dawn. Dawn and I are very close. I see her um, often for lunch, and she, when I was a little girl, and I was completely enraptured by Marianne's um, wardrobe, and I decided that I had to have a suspender um, <laughs> outfit just like Marianne. And Dawn took me shopping to look for one. And she would always pay special attention to, she just so warm hearted and just, um, she really is the person you, you would hope that Marianne would be. She's just a, a lovely, uh, funny, appreciative woman. She, she of all of them completely embraced that character and and wrung out of it every bit of joy that she could for the rest of her life. She really enjoyed the, well, I think most of them did. I think yeah. the only one who really kind of resisted it for a while was Tina. But but Dawn certainly loves the fact that she's Marianne and that little girls, you know, loved her and, and she was a, a practical, um, bright uh, character who was, you know, it was a, she was, kind of a role model for for little girls who didn't want to be <laughs> ginger. <laughs> and, and she's been here at this area where I live in the Illinois, Indiana area and uh, helping with Habitat for Humanity and she, she gets right out there and works with everybody else and helps build these homes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very charitable, very um, very sweethearted. She's, she is like America's sweetheart and she really deserves that. And I think that that um, I'm, I'm grateful that she's still with us and I'm always happy to have um, our lunches together. And she's just a lovely lady. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back and talk more about Gilligan's Island and Brady Bunch and then what, what went on after that. Exactly the sugar shack, but I want to tell you about a great little shop near Grayville where you can get the snacks and drinks you need for your country drive. Judge's Snack Shack is now open on Webster Road. They have ice cold drinks, chips, fresh farm eggs, honey, candy, ice cream, microwave foods, and much more. It's such a stone's throw from the Wabash River on Webster Road, and Judge's Snack Shack never closes. It's open day and night on the honor system. 
All items are priced for your convenience. So it's a fine time for a drive through the country and a perfect time to stop by the snack shack where the treats are waiting for you. Just in case you might want to know more about any of our books or programs or anything we're doing here at the Wandering Press, I want to give you some contact information and you can write to us and we'll get that back to you. So you can reach us at Wandering Press. That's W-A-N-D-E-R-I-N-G, Wandering Press, Post Office Box 153, Crayville, Illinois, 62844. Wandering Press, Post Office Box 153, Crayville, Illinois, 62844. Or if you want to email us, it's wandermag2003 at yahoo.com. It's great to have yeah. you on our show, Wonder Mag on Air. I'll tell you what, you, you've been a wonderful guest, and we we got some more questions for you. Uh, okay. What were the circumstances behind the show's cancellation? I want to also mention the Gunsmokes uh, idea, if that was what really happened or not. Yes, it, it was real, what really happened. I mean, they had been told that they were picked up for another season, and everybody was getting ready to uh, to. to to get, you know, to do another season of the, the show. And then um, the head of CBS, his, um, his wife was a big Gunsmoke fan. And on the schedule, they were, like, moving things around to fit shows in for, for different nights. And the only, the only night that Gunsmoke would fit in right, it would take up half of um, another show, and that happened to be... Gilligan's Island. Mm -hmm. So Gilligan's Island was sacrificed so that the executive's wife could watch Gunsmoke. Was that Monday night? Uh, was it Monday night? I don't remember. It could have been. I don't remember. But it yeah, could that... have been. I, I don't remember. I was, when Gilligan started, I was seven, and when it ended, I was ten. People don't usually realize that Gilligan only was on for three years. Three years, years yeah. And Gunsmoke... Yeah, they, just, they used to do... 33 episodes a year. So even though it was only on three years, there were 100 episodes with the pilot. And you, and you know, uh, Gunsmoke at that time, it, it debuted in 55, so it must have been on, it, it was probably about 12 years in, on the air by that time, 12 or 13 years. It went on, and it, yep. it went on until 75. I mean, it, <laughs> could you imagine, yeah. Gil, could you imagine well, Gilligan going that long? Yeah. <laughs> Your father might have had, you know, I don't like It'd been wonderful to see if he could have kept Gilligan's Island going several more seasons. I, I don't know where they would have gotten the ideas, but he got he, he did come up with some pretty good, whoever the writers were, some pretty good ideas on that show. For, yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of you know, people would come in and, and present their, their episode ideas. And Dad always had a, a hand in the writing of everything, even if it was a, an episode that he wasn't like specifically writing. But um, he always... Another one of his shows, and I, I, you know, I, I don't take any flack for liking this show. I, I liked it. I watched it. Of course, I was four or five years old, but it was. It's about time. I'd like to hear your thoughts yeah. about that show. Yeah, I used to go to that set too. I used <laughs> a lot of the, the Gilligan sets for for it's about I, time. I thought so. Yeah, and yeah, it was it was a really fun show, and 
it just didn't get the ratings after the first year, so they decided, or the first season, so they decided to bring the astronauts back, and, mm -hmm. and I thought that was fun, too. I preferred it when the astronauts were in the prehistoric times, so I, I liked dinosaurs, so, but then again, I was seven, eight Yeah, they, they tried to, uh, like you said, they tried to tinker with the format, and they brought them, brought them back to modern times, and that, I, I do remember some of those episodes, and I, I think I liked the first format better. But yeah, he, I did too. But neither one worked, so. But, yeah, but uh, you know, sometimes you, you win some, you lose some. It's right? still, it's still available. Yeah, it's still available. I think you can get the DVD, and I've seen a couple episodes on online. Right, right. So it had some great actors in it. Oh yeah, Joey Ross and Imogen Coca, yeah. they were fantastic. Yeah, and then uh, we're going to move on because. Uh, there's another hit series we want to talk about that your father was behind, and I'm sure everybody knows what I'm getting ready to mention, The Brady Bunch. Tell yeah. us how The Brady Bunch came to be, and, and, and why do you think it just struck such a chord with the people, this family sitcom? Well, I think that um, there were a couple of reasons. Again, you know, going back to people learning to live together, mm -hmm. which was Dad's major theme in everything he ever did. Um, but I also think that it was one of the few shows that looked at life um, often through the children's eyes. And um, a lot of family shows were basically about the parents and their issues, and the kids mm -hmm. were kind of like minor characters. But with Brady, it really focused on the, the little problems that kids were dealing with every day. And also because there, was a, there were kids for each age of kids watching, like the younger kids loved Cindy, and the older kids loved Marsha and Greg. And so I think that there was a demographically it appealed to uh, a wide variety of, of kids watching it but it also um, allowed the parents because they, they had some like usually beeline storylines but but they were it, they were always there in a constructive way and I think that um, today and, and you know, it, it was a safe show for for kids to watch for um, you know it, it raised generations of, of America's youth, I think. And again, it's funny, funnily enough, it was a huge hit in Australia. I guess my dad <clears throat> must have had some Australian blood in him or something. Uh, you know, to me, uh, a lot of the family sitcoms of that time didn't, didn't ring true, but uh, not so much that was such a true series, but I think the kids seemed like real kids. Yeah, and that was one of the things that they really um, stroked for when the kids were... Um, when the kids were being cast, because a lot of times studios would want, you know, the, the really brainy kid or the really, you know, stuck up kid or, you know, whatever it was. But dad, when he was casting the kids, he just wanted kids. And he wanted whatever their personality traits were um, to, to come out and to, to, like, they would amplify those traits in the show. And, and you could see it, too, when um, a lot of the kids really... It's like Maureen was a fantastic crier, <laughs> and whenever they had like a show, they put a crying theme for Marcia because she was always really good at crying, and that was just one of her talents. And I think that they allowed the kids to be who they were, which um, which was really appealing to I think a lot of people. I think of an episode. Was it Jan was the one who got hit in the nose with a football? No, it was Marcia. Marcia. Okay, okay, I, I got yeah. him confused, but. There was always yeah, Marcia got hit in the, the nose with the football, <laughs> and um, the guy who threw the football 
in the actual like filming of it was my brother Lloyd. Oh, was he? Okay, Lloyd Schwartz. Yeah. And then uh, seems to me there was an episode with the, where this girl uh, gets a frog put on her head. That was me. Okay, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's what I was leading into because uh, you were also a guest star on the Brady Bunch. Uh, what was your yeah, role I on that one? One episode. The first episode I was in was the Slumber Party. Mm -hmm. um, but it was called Slumber Caper. And uh, I was the one that Marsha uninvited to her slumber party because <laughs> she thought I drew the picture or wrote the, the saying. But it wasn't me. It was another girl. And they had to, and Marsha had to eventually invite me to the, to the slumber party. And I was, my name in that episode was Jenny Wilson. I think and I'll... then I did two episodes where I was Rachel. Greg's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. One where we went to the um, drive-in and Bobby was in the back seat who had, and he had the umbrella. And the other one was um, Greg Gets Grounded where um, they leave the box of frogs in the back seat and we go to the drive-in. We're watching the same drive-in movie. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever notices that, but it's the same movie. And um, I was Rachel in those two episodes. And then for the very last episode ever filmed, I was Gretchen. And that I was one of the girls in the beauty parlor when Greg's hair turns orange. I remember that and, episode. Um, in that scene, I was uh, with Florence Henderson's daughter Barbara, who's also a friend of mine and, and still is. And uh, Maureen and Barbara and I, that's Marcia and Florence, uh, Florence's daughter and I, who were very close friends uh, during this whole time. And I never knew back when I was watching those episodes that. Uh... Sherwood Schwartz's daughter was one of the guest stars. Yep. And that's that's great. That that's, that's just some interesting uh, trivia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have this on my list, but uh, I, before we leave the Brady Bunch series, uh, I want to get your thoughts on uh, one thing that people sometimes and there's there's varying opinions on this, but most of them are negative. But uh, again, just like it with Tino Louise, I don't blame the actor who played him. But I want to talk about Cousin Oliver. Oh, Cousin Oliver, Robbie Rist. <laughs> Robbie Rist, yes. <laughs> I love Robbie. Robbie's fantastic. He's so talented. Um, he's a very good musician. And he um, he was brought in. The network wanted, again, to, to stretch out the demographic and include littler kids. So they brought in Cousin Oliver. And um, it just happened to be that he was in the last six episodes. So mm. people think he was a jinx and, and you know got the show canceled. But... But it was it was kind of dropping off at the yeah it was point. nearing the I, end I, I don't yeah blame him. yeah and then now was he in a, he was in a series I don't know if it was your father's series or not he was in one called uh, Big John Little John yes he was in and that was that was Dad's show too. I thought it was yeah, yeah. Saturday morning show yeah. wasn't it yeah I I love I, I love that uh, series I was the dialogue coach on Big John Little John yeah. so I worked on that show of course for people who don't know what that show's about it's about a uh, it's a school teacher, wasn't it, who, who somehow transforms back into a child from time to time? It was about a school teacher, Robbie, um, her, played her. the child, but it was, a, it was um, Herb Edelman yes. played mm -hmm. the school teacher, and they went for a vacation in Florida, and he drank from the Fountain of Youth, mm -hmm. and um, his metabolism became un, un, uneven, and he would uh, just spontaneously go from being Herb Edelman and to regressing to being Robbie Rist. And so the show is about, you know, when he would go back and forth in, in of course, yes. inopportune moments. I watched every episode of that. I love that series. <laughs> yeah, 
That was a really fun show. I I had an experience when I was working on that show. Do you Mm -hmm. want to hear about that? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I always call it my my most Lucy moment because (laughs) I was working on Big John, Little John, and we went for a lunch break, and one of my friends was a set decorator on the next stage over, Mm-hmm. And she was carrying a, a tablecloth, and we were we were walking back um, from lunch, and she said that uh, she was going to be decorating the set for they were doing an Orson Welles uh, wine commercial, mm-hmm. one of those Gallo wines. Drink no wine before it's time. <laughs> you know, one, one I remember. And I said, oh, can, can I come? I'd love to to meet Orson Welles. And she said, no, 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 no. They don't allow anybody who's not supposed to be there on the set when Orson Welles is there because he gets very enraged if there's somebody there who shouldn't be hit, who shouldn't be there. And I said, oh, I just love, to, I want to really want to meet Orson Welles. And she said, well, there is one way, but you won't want to do this. And I said, well, tell me. And she said, I'm, I have this tablecloth, and I'm putting this tablecloth over this little table that's right next to him where we're going to put the wine and the glasses, and. If you are really, really quiet, I'll bring you in now, and you can get under this table, and I'll put the tablecloth down, and that way you can be there when he does the the filming of the commercial. And I was like, that sounds great. I'll do it. So I went with her, and I figured, you know, how bad could it be? He's a professional. It's going to take him two, maybe three takes, and mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll go back to Big John Little John. So I go there, and I go under this table, and I'm like hiding under this table. She puts her tablecloth down, and Orson Welles walks in, and he sits down like right next to me. I see his ankles, very big ankles, and he starts filming this commercial. And as he's filming the commercial, he drinks more and more wine, and he gets drunker and drunker. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I'm stuck under there because I can't come out because I know he'll be enraged. I meanwhile missing my job. I can't get back to the to the set to do Big John Little John, and I'm stuck under this table. And it ended up he took a hundred and I think it was like 127 takes before they finally called it. And I could not move. I was like because I was like so cramped up underneath that table that I had to wait till he got off the set so I could come out because I didn't want to enrage him. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you never actually saw him. Per, I mean, not his face. Well, I, well, I saw his ankle. Yeah. And I sat next to him the entire time, but he didn't know I was there. And that sounds like something for my level, Lucy. <laughs> I know. I know. My husband always says, that's your totally out of my love, Lucy. How could you do that? I said, I just wanted to, I wanted to see him work. He was a yeah. legend. Right? I, don't, I don't want to be suspicious, <laughs> but it sounds to me like a great actor like Orson Welles um, maybe was flubbing those lines so he could keep drinking. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Oh, I, I said, that I said, it sounds to me like maybe Orson Welles was such a great actor, maybe he was flubbing his lines so he could keep drinking. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's possible. I think there's like some YouTube video of of him like doing one of these wine commercials where he's getting like increasingly incoherent. I want to talk about uh, something that maybe some of our listeners don't know know about, and that's Gilligan's Island, the musical. rock and roll group called The Housewives, mm-hmm. and we did a lot of television, we were on the home show, and um, we were doing comedy clubs and rock and roll clubs all over LA, 
and my dad would come to see the show, and he loved the songs that I wrote with my husband. My husband is a, a, a musician. He's a guitar player. He used to play with uh, Paul McCartney in, in Wings. Oh, yes. And uh, when we met, we started, um, I had this idea for The Housewives, and, and then all of a sudden I was a housewife with, well, I mean, if you call it just any, any woman who's like, in the house, a housewife. Anyway, um, I was <laughs> I was still a writer, yeah. but I just I thought that it was it would be interesting to do songs based on domestic themes, but still have them be like real rock and roll songs. Mm -hmm. So we were doing "Be My Babysitter" and "Call a Repairman" and "Ironing Board" and all these songs. And my dad would come to the shows, and afterwards he came up to me and he said, "I would like to do a musical of Gilligan's Island." Because mm. I just went to see Annie, and I think that Gilligan has the same kind of colorful, bigger-than-life nature, and I would like you and your husband to write the songs. So uh, we started working with Dad and, and my brother Lloyd, and Dad and Lloyd wrote the script, and Lawrence and I wrote the score. And there have been probably about 50 productions of it now. It's played all over the place, and it's uh, really... It's if you love Gilligan's Island, it's so true to Gilligan's Island. And it was fun to write for each of these characters and, and go into the styles that we felt like were appropriate for every one of the characters. It was, it's, um, it's very goofy, but then again, Gilligan is, is pretty goofy. Yes. And um, it was one of the first musicals that I, I had written. And then, of course, uh, there's also a Brady Bunch musical, is that right? There is, and um, we originally started working on a Brady Bunch musical because um, there wasn't one, and once there was a Gilligan musical, everybody was asking about a Brady Bunch musical, so my brother Lloyd and I said, well, if there's a Brady Bunch musical, we should write it, so we started working on that, and we had to put it on the shelf for a little bit when we first did a workshop of it because CBS was going through rights things, and, and it's, uh, CBS is... They, they took over the rights from Paramount, and because there was, like, just rights issues, mm -hmm. we couldn't uh, pursue it for a while. But then um, there was a whole changeover again, and all of a sudden it was, like, okay for us to do. So we have now, actually, in this quarantine time, we've been doing the uh, touching, you know, doing the final touches on backing tracks because we have a, a reading coming up at the end of October for the Brady Bunch musical, and we have a... a a few theaters that are interested in mounting it, of course, when theater comes back, and who knows when that's going to happen. But um, Lawrence and I wrote the, the score to that one, and I actually wrote the book to that one with my brother Lloyd. Well, you know, who knows? Someday there may be an It's About Time musical. You never know. Although it'd be hard, hard to get the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, it'd be hard. <laughs> yeah, the rocking dinosaurs. Uh, Although, you know, they did King Kong. I went to see King Kong, and there was a Big old monkey in that. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. I, I, I remember they had some trouble with what, with a Spider-Man musical one time when the guy his uh, strings broke in mid-flight. <laughs> yeah, and um, actually, he, he's a, a friend of ours. Is he? Um, yeah, Reeve Carney. He's um, he and my daughter Ilse went to, to school together, and we're, we're close friends. Are are still close friends. Nothing happened to him. Michael. Yeah. Now she's a musician too, isn't she? Yeah. She's, um, you probably hear her all the time, even though you don't know it. She, there's a song called High Hopes that was like a huge hit all for the last 
I don't know how many years. Hmm. She wrote that one. She wrote Miley Cyrus's new hit, uh, Midnight Sky. She wrote um, Nothing Breaks Like a Heart and uh, Pitbull's Fireball. She's, uh, oh, wow. she's quite a, a successful uh, writer for Sony right now, and she's been working on her own album at this point and also working. She did a, a country album last week um, with a, an artist in, in Nashville. But she's a really talented songwriter. Now, we talked about you, yourself being an artist and all the things you've worked on. Is there anything that maybe we didn't uh, cover that you might want to talk about now? Well, I've produced more than 20 albums for Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence uh, and my husband, where he was, uh, started out as a studio musician in England and um, ended up getting picked for uh, the lead guitar for Paul McCartney's band Wings. Mm-hmm. And then when he moved to New York, we met, started working together and got married and had kids. And then I've been producing his albums for years now. And um, so there's, there's all of those. And uh, I have a, a movie that's being read at a few studios right now that I wrote. Um, so keep your fingers crossed for that one. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> just keep busy with just a lot of writing and a lot of producing and um, just and looking forward to this Brady musical that could happen. And never, never, and, you've uh, never had any thoughts of maybe becoming a doctor? <laughs> me, no. I don't think I would be very good at it at all. Let's take a break, and we're going to come back with one final question for Hope Juber, my guest on Wonder Mag on Air. Just sit right back till you hear a tale, tale of a fateful trip that started from this topic for the boyless tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, skipper, brave and sure. By passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. on and we've been talking we was talking off the air but we also you know that's that's the fun of it i really have enjoyed this this conversation with you today um thank you what what do you uh i want to talk about the legacy of your father because gilligan's island is never going to go away neither will the brady bunch but uh just what do you want to say if someone was to ask you what is the legacy of sherwood sports i think the legacy is is that there's a safe place, that he's created an entertaining, safe place for families. 
and I think that it's um, it's rare, and that you can always learn something and and be entertained and, and not have to worry that you know something's going to happen. I mean, the, the scariest thing that ever happened was like the big spider yeah, on Cookins Island. That was scary. Scared of that. Yeah. But other than that, I think that um, children. He was he was just really he was. Uh, Children matter a great deal to him, and and generations. And I think that he was um, a gentle visionary and that he, allowed uh, generations of people all around the world to to see how you can take different people and put them together and have them learn to work out their differences. And I think now of all times, it's um, it's nice to have a place like that to visit. And uh, he lived to be 94, is that right? Yeah. yeah. He lived to be 94. My mom lived to be 96. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very, very lucky. He was a, a wonderful dad and uh, very sweet, very philanthropic, um, bright guy. And he was really, really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine. And he... There, there are some interviews with him uh, on, on YouTube you can watch uh, talking about his life, career, and talking about his series. I, I, I was watching some of those last week in preparation for this interview. Just, just a wonderful, wonderful person. His personality comes across, and of course, of course we the castaways, so we've got a couple of them left. And I, I, I appreciate your yeah. time, Hope. I mean, this has been great. I mean, it's been a trip down memory lane with talking about Gilligan's Island, the Brady Bunch, and all of his other shows, and even going back into the old-time radio days, which we love talking about that on here. Right. Well, it's wonderful talking to you. I enjoyed the interview, and, and I hope everybody listening enjoyed it as well. Okay, and, uh, you know, if anybody gets any reports about seven stranded castaways on some deserted island, uh, just remember, it's only a TV show. I'll, tell, I'll send out the Coast Guard. Thank you. <laughs> Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. It's the story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. They were four men living all together. Yet they were all alone Till the one day when the lady met this fellow And they knew that it was much more than a hunt That this group was somehow from a family That's the way we all became the Brady Bunch The Brady Bunch The Brady Bunch That's the way we became the Brady Bunch I want to talk to you for just a minute about our sponsorship ads and we're doing things a little bit different now than what we've done in the past because my time is so limited and I know everyone out there in the business community is hurting right now in these hard times. So we've come up with a deal I think anybody should be able to take advantage of. Uh, it's only going to cost you $20 a year and a business card. Yes, my overhead is pretty low and I can do it right now at $20 and a business card. Now this is going to get you some mention ads in rotation on our Wonder Mag on Air radio show, internet radio show, 
and also on our Facebook pages. We have two or three that we advertise our show on and different things going on within the Wandering Press. So folks, I hope you can take advantage of this, and we're going to be talking about it from time to time on here, because I really want to work with you, and I want to keep advertising some businesses and, and, and keep my show going, because you know, I don't need a lot of money to keep it going, but I don't want to do it for free, because you know my time's worth something too. So if you want to get a hold of us, you know how to do that, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now, you can just write to me if you still like to write letters and send a check with it for $20. A business card, or anyway, it's Wandering Press, Post Office Box 153, Grayville, Illinois 62844. That's Wandering Press, Post Office Box 153, Grayville, Illinois 62844. Or you can call me, Denny Reese, at 618-375-1367. That's 618-375-1367. And I'll come see you wherever you may be located. And you want to email me? Do that at wandermag2003 at yahoo.com. That's W-A-N-D-E-R-M-A-G 2003, the number, at yahoo.com. And I, I don't know, I'd like to keep this going for a long time because I think I can right now. I don't have, I'd like to build a studio someday. And I probably will with your help and support. But right now, with all these hard times going on, I think this is the best deal we can do for you. $20 and a business card. We've already got some people signed up. And if you pay your $20, you're in for a year. We won't bother you. We won't call you and say, hey, we may want updates or want to know what's going on with your business. If you want me to talk about something on the air, I will. But right now, that's that's the way we're doing it. $20 and a business card. Be a member. Be a sponsor of Wander Mag on Air. As we close the 80th episode of Wander Mag on Air, I just want to take time to thank all of you out there listening. I hope some of you are thinking about supporting us. It takes a little bit of money to keep this thing going. Not a whole lot, but we do kind of like to get paid once in a while. And folks, I want to thank my special guest, Hope Juber, daughter of Sherwood Swartz, the man who created so many memorable and lovely shows that we remember and still watch. And I'm going to close this show out with a song, as I like to do. And I'm sure the skipper, Jonas Grumby, was the son of a son of a son of a sailor. He was quite a sailor himself. So, so long.
as he greets you at the border. And the lady, she wears the trailer bag. Remains. I'm just glad I don't live in a trail. 